I heard the story recently, uh, unfortunately, of a church that was planted a few years ago by two very good friends. And the church uh, thrived for many years until recently a, a disagreement of some sort arose between those two pastors. And that church is now split. Uh, and those two men who were such good friends and colleagues are now uh, no longer even speaking to each other. And those are, those are sad stories to hear and, and disturbing stories to hear uh, and, and probably are more common uh, than we really want to admit. For, for church to have, churches to have, we're not getting ready to split, don't worry. For, for, for this side and this side. For, for churches to have these, these disagreements over things, sometimes they have disagreements over significant issues, and when we can kind of understand, sometimes they have disagreements over not so significant issues, like what color the, the carpet in the fellowship hall is going to be. Uh, and it just leads to this, this disunity and, and breaking of relationships. But it's not just in churches that that happens. Uh, it happens in our families. It happens with friends. Uh, it happens with our coworkers. And, and we've all been there at one time or the other. Maybe you're going through something like that right now, this relationship that really should be unified uh, is instead split and there's division and not just disagreement but actively not liking each other there's there's a real disturbance there Uh, if we're in that sort of situation where do we start to head back towards some sort of unity or if we're in relationships that seem like they're going along pretty well, how do we maintain that kind of unity or the kind of unity we would like to see in relationships? Paul's answer in this passage that we're about to look at is that unity, whether it's in the church or in families or, or wherever, unity flows from humility. Uh, a humility that considers others more significant than ourselves. A humility that looks not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. A humility that's ultimately grounded in the humility of Jesus Christ. So, if you would, look with me. This is God's Word. Uh, and we're going to start in the bulletin. You're about halfway down. We're going to start with chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these um, amazing words, reaffirming the kingship, the deity of Jesus Christ, and yet showing us at the same time uh, his humility. 
that he would come and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. Father, I pray that we would be amazed by the love of Christ for us today. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, book of Philippians real quick, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, They're dealing with a couple of issues. They're dealing with some sort of opposition from the outside. They're also having trouble of some sort getting along. Uh, Later in chapter 4, Paul's actually going to call out a couple of the women by name who who are feuding with each other and plead with them to get along. Uh, back in chapter 1, uh, we saw, as, as he was telling us what it looked like to live a life worthy of the gospel, he says that he longs to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he enters into this impassioned plea. You know, at the beginning, it's not so much an argument, it's just this plea that the church there would be unified. Well, where does that come from? All right, It's one thing to say, hey, let's all get along. Where does that unity that Paul is pleading for in his congregation, where is that going to come from? Where do we start if, if we're in a relationship that, where there's a lack of unity? How do we begin to uh, restore a fractured relationship? How do we maintain a healthy relationship? Paul's answer here in verse 3 is that in order for us to be unified, we have to cultivate in our hearts and in our lives and our actions a spirit of humility. The secret to unity is actually humility. And then he shows us what I think are are four ways in this text to cultivate and to grow uh, that spirit of humility. Uh, We'll call these four keys to humility. uh, And they're this. We need to be self-aware. We need to be other-aware. We need to be Jesus-aware, and we need to be future-aware. Self-aware, other-aware, Jesus-aware, and future-aware. The first key to humility here is that we need to be self-aware. Um, I, I don't know if, if American Idol, it may be done. I don't know if they've got another season in it. Have they canceled it? Anyway, my, my favorite part of that show over the last however many years it's been on has always been the first three or four weeks because I really don't care that much about it once the people who can actually sing are competing with each other. I like those first three or four weeks when the people who can't sing are trying to convince professional musicians who know they can't sing that they actually can sing. Okay, And at times, it's just hilarious to watch. At times, it's rather sad to watch. And at times, it's actually disturbing to watch this. When they're told... No, not only are you not going to Hollywood, you need to go home and put tape over your mouth and never sing again. You really cannot sing. And, and to see the way that people react sometimes, they don't receive it as, you know, you, you, you are, have, you know, whatever, millions of dollars you've made singing. You might know something about this. Sometimes they receive that well, but then sometimes it's, no, you're wrong. I know in my heart of hearts that I can sing, and I don't care what you say. My mother has told me that I can sing. <laughs> All right? And so it must be true. They have no self-awareness. They have no self-awareness. If we're going to cultivate a heart of humility, we have to, to, to remember who we are. We have to be self-aware. We have to be aware of the things that go on in our hearts. Uh, and when I say this, there's a couple things I'm, I'm getting at in that. One is that we have to remember who we are in this 
In verse 8, Paul points us to Jesus' death on the cross. Now, why did Jesus die on the cross? What was the God-man doing on the cross? Why did He need to die? Well, Scripture tells us He needed to die because the wages of sin is death. But you say, wait a minute, Jesus didn't sin, did He? Why would, why would He need to die? He did it for us. Because we died. Because we broke God's law. That Jesus then died in the place of those who knew they were sinners and yet put their faith in this Jesus Christ who died for their sins so that they might be made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, we gain heaven, the Bible says, not by merit, not by work, not by our work anyway, but by the work of Jesus Christ and through faith in what He has done. And so we have to remember that that I'm so broken that in order for me to be made right with God, the very Son of God had to die for me. We are broken people. We are sinful people. We're messed up people. Uh, one of my favorite lines that describes the, describes the human condition comes from the book, uh, A River Runs Through It. And, and it, it, you'll excuse the brief strong language here, but I think it just captures perfectly the human condition. And, and the author is, he's talking about fly fishing and somebody learning how to fly fish. And this is what he said. If you have never picked up a fly rod before, you will soon find it factually and theologically true that man by nature is a damn mess. Right? That's what fly fishing will teach you. If you've never tried, you'll understand. Um, it's, just, it's a messy exercise. And he says, if you go try that, what you're going to find out is we are by nature a mess. It's not just factually true as you're trying to fish. It's theologically true about our lives. Uh, you may hear somebody use the phrase, you may use the phrase from time to time, total depravity. That's what that's getting at is that we are by nature a mess. Or as a friend and I were talking the other day about various sins that people struggle with and, and that sort of thing, and he just kind of said, you know, at the end of the day, we're all perverted. We're all a mess. We're all a wreck. And we have to remember that about ourselves. Because if we weren't messed up, there would be no need for this cross that Jesus came and that Jesus died on. So if we're going to cultivate humility... We have to remember who we are. And remembering who we are ought to cause us day by day to examine our hearts and examine our motives in the, the various situations we find ourselves in. Uh, look at verse 3 and 4 again. Uh, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. You know, when you're, when you're crossways with that other person, that's the perfect time not just to say, oh, what's wrong with them? But to ask yourself, what's, what's going on with my heart? Why am I holding on to my position so doggedly? Why am I holding on to my righteousness so doggedly? Is it Maybe my own sin, maybe my own selfishness, maybe my own selfish ambition, as Paul would write here. Uh, is my devotion to what I want? Am I at all considering the interest of this other person? 
or at the end of the day, is it really just about me? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes when I have these kind of self-realization. I think, you know, I really just want what makes me happy. And if we can work out for it to make you happy too, that's just bonus. All right? That's, that's great. Uh, but, but my concern really is, is about me. That's hard to see, though, isn't it? We don't really realize that about ourselves very often. And it's especially hard to see that when we're in the midst of conflict with another person. It's hard for me to convince myself that my, the main problem in this conflict is not you, but that it's me. Um, and, 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 I, and I realize, um, you know, if you're being stalked by a serial killer, okay, the main problem is probably not you, it's probably them, okay? I'm not making this kind of universal statement. But just in our, in our day-to-day conflicts that we find ourselves in, if we would stop for a minute and quit thinking so much about what they're bringing to the conflict and look at what I'm bringing to the conflict and examine my own heart, how, how far would that go to actually ending the conflict? Because if you think about it, how often uh, when you're in this disagreement with somebody else, do you point the finger at them? And how much time do you spend pointing the finger at yourself? and thinking about what's going on in your own heart. Paul's words here and the story of Scripture remind me, I need to be suspicious of me. I really need to be suspicious of me. I may really think I'm a beautiful singer when the reality is is that I can't sing a lick. I may think that I'm the one who's completely in the right in this conflict when the reality is is that I am being ruled by my own selfish ambitions and desires. See, if we're going to cultivate a humility that leads to unity, we've got to be self-aware. We've got to be very suspicious of ourselves and our own motives. That's the first key to humility, being self-aware. The second key here is being other-aware. And I will read verses 3 and 4 again. Um, well, actually, I will. Let me, read, let me read these again. Verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, the, the first thing we need to remember is that, that every single day, if we're going to create this other awareness, every single day... Every single person that you run across is someone who's made in the image of God. Uh, Whether it's uh, the person who just pulled out in front of you in traffic, uh, the store clerk who is being so rude to you while they're they're checking you out, or the telemarketer that just won't. Those people are made in the image of God. And you can go back to the the first chapters of Genesis to, to see this, but mankind, unlike anything else in God's creation, has this unique value. And that we are created in God's likeness. Uh, because of that, Francis Schaeffer once wrote, since we are made in the very image of God, there are no little people. There are no little people. And because there are no little, places, little people, there are no little places. I think of places where you just kind of despise, oh, I would never live there. There are no little places because there are no little people. We are all made in God's image and have value and worth and dignity because of that. And we are to treat them as those who are made in God's image. In fact, Paul says here, count them more significant 
than yourself. Count them more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we're going to do that, if we're going to look to the interests of others, we've actually got to be aware of the interests of others. Uh, there's a scene in the movie Les Mis. Um, well, actually, I, there, I don't, I've never seen the movie. Um, that's kind of a Facebook joke. There's a scene in the movie where they sing, and it's right at the beginning, and then right at the middle. And it, actually, there's a scene in the movie, this is more my speed, there's a scene in the movie Wreck-It Ralph. Okay? That's, that's what your pastor likes to watch. Um, the, the movie is about uh, video game characters, and the video game characters live in the video games, and then at night they quit doing their video game stuff, and they come out and they, whatever, they live their normal life, but they're still in the, in the box in the, in the arcade. And Ralph plays the bad guy in this video game. And it's kind of, for those of you over 40, uh, it's, it's basically based on Donkey Kong, the old original video game. Uh, and, and Ralph is kind of the equivalent of the gorilla in Donkey Kong, and he's trying to wreck everything, and whoever the hero is, I can't remember his name, is trying to save everybody. And, and, and every day, Ralph falls off the building at the end of the day, and they celebrate the hero, and then Ralph leaves at the end of the day, and he goes and he sleeps in the garbage dump with his head on a pillow of bricks all by himself, day after day after day. And none of the other characters ever stop to think, Hey, that might kind of bother him, that, he, that he's the bad guy every day. And then he has to leave, and we all stay here in the house, and he has to leave and go and stay in the garbage dump. Nobody's aware of that. And then when they have the, the 30th anniversary of the game, and they're celebrating their great 30-year run, nobody bothers to invite him because he's the, he's the bad guy. And it doesn't occur to anyone that that might bother him not to be invited to, the, to this celebration of this game they've been in for 30 years. None of them are other aware. They're not aware of the feelings of this person that they spend 12 hours a day with day after day after day after day. The person or the people that you may be in conflict with right now, um, do you ever stop and remember... That person is made in the very image of God. They're made in the likeness of God. Have you ever stopped to say, not just what's in my interest here, but what's in their best interest? What would it look like for me to serve them? What would it look like for me to consider them better? Consider them better than myself. What are their needs? What are their wants? What are their insecurities? And you know, when you're, when you're fighting with somebody, you're always looking at their sin. But, but, but think about the ways that they've been sinned against. What are the things that have shaped them, that have made them this person that you're in conflict with at this moment? What are the difficulties in their life? How would you want to be treated if you were living in their shoes, if the roles in the conflict were reversed? You know, just, just to make it kind of, kind of practical, brothers and sisters... Um, what would it look like when that last piece of birthday cake is on the plate for you to think about your siblings first instead of yourself? No, you take it. No, you take it. No, you have the last piece of cake. 
what would it look like, parents, for us uh, when you know when when you come in and you're tired and you're just thinking, I just want to watch television, or you're you're in the middle of that project that's got to be done. What would it look like for you to see your children come in and say, I'm going to put their interest before my own. I'm going to put their interest before getting some some rest right now or some some me time. I'm going to put their interest before getting one more thing done in my great quest to get everything uh, done. What does it look like to put the interest of others before our own interests? Um, these are hard things, aren't they? That the Apostle Paul is, is, is calling us to. But they're a, one of the keys if we're going to cultivate humility. Being self-aware, being suspicious of my own motives, and also being other-aware at the same time. And honestly, they're not just hard things. They're impossible things if we don't see this third point here. We need to be self-aware and other-aware, but we also need to be Jesus-aware. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying the Philippians in all of this, we need to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be clear here, because Jesus Christ is much more than our example. In fact, if you look Jesus, if you look at Jesus just as your example, all that's going to do is condemn you. You'll have no Savior, and you'll simply be wallowing in, in guilt and in condemnation as you try to follow His example in your own strength. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins to bring forgiveness. And so for Jesus to be helpful to you, He's got to be more than just your example. But that doesn't mean He's less than our example. Uh, The whole point of our sanctification, of our growth as Christians, is that we might be made more and more like Jesus Christ. And and one one part of becoming more like Jesus Christ is becoming more like Jesus Christ in our attitude. Uh, Look at verse 6. Actually, I'll read verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, The idea here is that Jesus did, did, did not consider it something to be held on to to be equal with God. What's Paul saying? Uh, Jesus Christ is fully God. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is fully God, but Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. He didn't get rid of His divine nature, but He took on human nature, and He came, and He dwelt among us. He refused... Uh, to use his position of equality with the Father for his own advantage. He didn't cling to his position. He didn't hold on to his position. He, he set it aside for the sake of others. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
How did Jesus become poor? Look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Jesus Christ, the, the King of all creation, became poor by making himself of no reputation, by making himself nothing. By becoming a man, by becoming a servant, by becoming a slave even. Jesus Christ, the one to whom all glory and power and honor and majesty are due, set it all aside. Set aside his majesty, set aside his glory and became a man. He didn't give up his deity, but he took on human flesh. Fully God and fully man. He went from the the heights of greatness to the depths of of nothingness. Jesus Christ, the one who was guiltless, took our guilt. Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. He gave up His riches. He gave up His glory. He dwelt among us. The one who was worshipped by the heavenly host became a fetus. He was born in a stable. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. His feet hurt. He got headaches. He voluntarily lay aside the glory of heaven. He voluntarily restrained his power and accepted hardship and hatred and misunderstanding. He took on the form of a slave. He waived his rights to be exalted and even washed his disciples' feet. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life for the ransom of many. See, the humiliation of Jesus Christ didn't end with His simply becoming a man. It extended all the way to His death. His death on on a cross where He died a death that was customarily reserved for slaves and criminals. Jesus Christ voluntarily became obedient to God the Father. Even though he was tempted to give up, he remained obedient to death. A painful and shameful and accursed death. He bore our sins. He bore the pains of hell on our behalf. He became poor so that we might become rich. And Paul is saying, look what your Savior has done for you. Look how he became poor so that you might be rich. Look at how he humbled himself to save you. Shouldn't that create the same sort of humility in you? That life that would be characterized by dying to self so that you might serve others. Uh, In the movie uh, Hotel Rwanda, uh, Don Cheadle plays the manager Paul Rusin Bagniat, I'm, I'm butchering his name, but he plays, the, he plays the manager of this hotel in the capital city of uh, Rwanda. Uh, it, was a, it was a hotel that catered primarily to wealthy, four-star hotel that, create, that catered primarily to wealthy European travelers. Well, while he was manager, uh, the, the conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis kind of reached its apex. They had been uh, feuding for various reasons for centuries. Uh, the, the Hutus were in the majority, uh, and at one point the Tutsis, while in the minority, were the ruling party, and they really 
they oppressed the Hutus. And now the Hutus had the power. In fact, uh, one of their own was the president of Rwanda. And the United Nations was there, and they were brokering uh, what looked to be a peace agreement between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Uh, And about the time that they had finally brokered this peace agreement, the president's plane, remember the president was a Hutu, his his plane was shot down. Uh, It mysteriously crashed. And the, the more extreme elements of the Hutu party used that basically as an excuse to go on a rampage, killing Tutsis. Uh, they, they would refer to them as cockroaches. Centuries of animosity just boiled over all at once. Uh, and, and during this genocide, it's estimated that between 800,000 and a million people were killed. Uh, may, many of them with machetes. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a brutal... It was a brutal event. And in the midst of all that, this man named Paul uh, is himself a Hutu. He's a member of the party that has all the power. Uh, His wife is a Tutsi. Uh, And they live in a neighborhood where they have lots of Tutsi friends. And so he takes many of their friends and his family and he gives them shelter in the hotel. And then people find out, and more and more people begin to come. And by the end of of the movie, he is sheltering over 1,200 people, 1,200 refugees in a four-star hotel. When the reality is that he didn't have to do any of that. He was an honored man. He was a respected man. He was a wealthy man. He had contacts. And instead of using those contacts to get himself out of the city... Instead of joining up with his Hutu people and engaging in the persecution of the Tutsis, which he easily could have done, instead of just getting his family out, he refuses to leave and he stays for the duration of the conflict in that hotel, sheltering those refugees until the UN can actually get all of them out. He refuses to leave until they can get everybody out. He, he gave up his position. He gave up his rights. He said, I am going to stand and I'm going to die with this people. I'm going to save this people. They are going to be as if they were my people. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's a beautiful picture also of humbly following the example of Christ. Putting the the interests of others, putting the lives of others before my own interest and before my own life. If we are to cultivate humility, we must be self-aware, we must be other-aware, and we must be Jesus-aware. There's one last thing here, and and I want to look at this briefly. Um, Look at verses 9 through 11. Not only to be self-aware and other-aware and Jesus-aware, we need to also be future-aware. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I think to fully grasp the significance of that verse, um, you need to, to hear this passage from Isaiah 45. And I think about what I've just read, and then think about this passage in Isaiah 45, uh, verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. 
Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. You see, God affirming His uniqueness. He alone is, is God. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. To me, every Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is talking about the God of Israel. And then Paul takes that passage and he applies it to Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is is taking from this passage that is referring to the unique Uh, redeeming love of the God of Israel, and he's applying that to Jesus Christ. The name which is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow, is Yahweh. The name of the Lord. If you want a proof text that Jesus is God, you want a proof text of the divinity of Christ, this is it. Paul is saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Bow before Him. Bow before Him. Jesus is Lord. Confess it with your mouth. Uh, Jesus is Lord. The one who has humbled Himself has been exalted. The one who became poor has been made rich again. He is honored. He is glorified. He has triumphed over His enemies. He has accomplished atonement. And every knee will bow before Him. Now, how does that make us humble? How does looking to, to this future event, Jesus is triumphed, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, how does that make us humble? Uh, well, on the one hand, that warns us that a day is coming for everybody. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, whether you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a day that is coming that you will have to acknowledge where you will acknowledge whether you believe it now or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is God. And those who have been saved and redeemed will bow before Him and confess His Lordship joyfully. Those who have not been saved who are damned will still confess His Lordship with sorrow and with despair and with regret that they had not done it before. And so that creates humility in us as we think about this. But it also reminds us that Jesus, even though He was humiliated, that path of humiliation led to exaltation. It led to His exaltation. That death led to resurrection. And the same pattern is true in our lives as believers as well. 
that our death, that our day-to-day dying to self, that those places where we humiliate ourselves, where we serve the interest of others instead of our own as we follow in the path of our Savior, that, that those days of humiliation do not last forever. They will not be for nothing. Then one day as followers of Jesus Christ, we will ourselves be exalted with our Lord and with our Savior. If we are going to be humble now, we have to see where that path of walking humbly leads. It leads to glory. And so humility arises from being self-aware, from being other-aware, from being aware of the future, and realizing I don't have to get all the glory now because something so much better is coming. And it arises from being Jesus-aware. When you are just deadly aware of your own selfishness, your own love of comfort, your own pride, your own greediness, your lack of love. Paul is calling us ultimately to to look at Christ. To look at what Christ has accomplished for us. Because it's only when you and I see Christ's generosity toward us that we actually can begin to become generous toward others. It's only when we're taken aback and shocked at His humility that we can become humble. It's only when we see him serving us that we can begin to serve others. And it's only when we're amazed that he loves us in all of our mess that we will be enabled to love others in their mess as well. Let me pray for us. The Lord Jesus, we need eyes to see not just physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. We need to be able to see ourselves and be suspicious of ourselves. Um, Because we're masters of our own propaganda. So help us to see who we are. Help us to examine our motives. Uh, Lord Jesus, we need to be aware of others. We need to think about what they're going through because we we very often confess that we don't. We need to be aware of, of the glory that awaits the followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to be aware of you, Lord Jesus, who died humbly for us to save us from our sins. Lord Jesus, would you work humility into our hearts so that we might experience unity in our lives. And Father, I do pray if there are uh, relationships that some of us are in right now even that are fractured, that we might have the humility to love and to serve the person we are so upset with even now, and that you might use uh, our humility and our love to bring about restoration, just as you have used the humility and love of Christ to restore us to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.